All right. Uh, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, which was a letter written to the church in Corinth. And I titled this series, Messy Church, which, in fact, the church in Corinth was a very messy church. And they had all sorts of issues that Paul wanted to address in his letter to them. And in particular, if you've been here with us through the previous five weeks, um, the community found itself in conflict with one another, just, not just in conflict with God and what God may have wanted them to do, but in conflict with one another. And in short, the members of that church had a great deal of things to argue about. You might even suggest that they invented ways to argue with one another while they were together. So what form did the arguments take? What was happening? What have we seen so far? Uh, you know, a primary thing is we have seen that there was a constant struggle over who had the most power and influence within that group. Uh, they argued over who was better based on who baptized them, whether it was Paul, Apollos, Peter, or Jesus. They were suing one another in court. Uh, instead of dealing with problems on their own. Uh, in many of these cases, the rich in the community were taking advantage of the poor, and those who had more knowledge were lording it over those uh, who didn't, even forcing some of them or encouraging them to do things that went against their conscience. So if we step back from all of these things, we see that there is a trend. There is a trend to all of them, even the things that we haven't looked at so far. If you were to go back and read them, you see that there is a trend, and that is this. The Christians in Corinth acted in their own best interest every time they could. Anytime the opportunity arose to put themselves first, they did so. And Paul, in each case, admonished this church to stop being an embarrassment to Jesus and to get their act together. They weren't so good at doing that, but you know, we'll talk more about that later. But the arguments and fighting didn't stop with these issues that we've talked about. And this week, we are going to cover uh, the dysfunction with the community when it came to the area of worship. Oh boy, worship. I don't know why this is, but historically, churches have had pretty serious arguments about what to do in worship, who can do what in worship, what songs to sing in worship, what you can physically do, whether stand or sit or clap or raise your hands. It's a difficult subject for us to tackle. And last week when we talked about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, I had conversations with several of you because this church here has already been through several conflicts many of which address the idea of worship. And we all know people that no longer meet here with us, in part because of the decisions that were made during that time. And so I had a few people, even some that were very heavily involved with the meetings, come to me and say, did we do the wrong thing by making this choice? And I think that gets down to something that's, that was hard. And, and you know, we, we talked about at the end of last week that those verses, that example of, of eating meat sacrificed to idols is not meant to be a weapon for the modern church. 
see, you should have waited for me. Or see, you just don't know any better. It's not meant to be one or the other. Because what Paul is talking about throughout all of this, and you can take the other examples, they are supposed to work through things together. They are supposed to work through things together. And it was a much different scenario at the time because there was not another church in Corinth for them to go to. So if they somehow didn't find their place or were excluded from that church, that was it. Christianity was, had no place for them within that city. Is it different today? Yeah. I mean, how many churches are just on this street? One, two, three, four, five, maybe? On this street alone. You could go to five different places to worship this morning. On this street. So it's a different thing that we're looking at when we're talking about today. In this church, the church in Corinth, there have been disagreements, arguments, and division over what can or cannot be done in the worship service. And we know, because you've been through it before, that even with the greatest of care, disagreements over worship can lead to fragmentation in the church. You know, in fact... There are probably more issues around worship that people would be willing to leave over than over any other category you can think of. So, what we need to acknowledge, first of all, before we get into all the rest, is this. Um, This is an area that a lot of us have experienced very personal things in these arguments or these discussions or have seen people leave the church or, you know, whatever it is. And I'll tell you the one thing that I told to someone in particular last week, and that is this. When it comes to these kinds of disagreements, in today's culture where someone can walk down the street and find another church, the best that we can do when we're dealing with, in conflict with someone else, is to love them. Whether they, however far uh, they may go away from us on this thing, however much they may vehemently disagree with us, however much they may threaten you about what they may or may not do based on whatever, even if they leave the church, when there is conflict within the church, our first commitment is to love one another. That is our first commitment. And I just want to say to you who have been on one side of this for some of these things, you can't control today what other people are going to do when there are so many other options. You can't can't make up their minds for them. But you can still love them, whatever it is that they decided. So let's take a look at how disagreements over worship became a battleground for the church in Corinth. So first question, how many uh, issues around worship were there? I'm really glad you asked because there were a few really interesting ones. Uh, One, well, several issues centered around communion. Uh, Some were participating in idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. Now this is different than what we talked about last week. Because whereas last week they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, this was people were going to the actual sacrifice. 
and participating in the sacrifice to idols and then also going to the Lord's Supper. So Paul has to instruct them that, hey, there's, you know, you can't have it both ways, okay? You can't go to these, these, uh, these idol ceremonies and then uh, come have the Lord's Supper. They're, they're different. Um, uh, people were doing uh, private Lord's <laughs> Suppers. So, and it kind of took some different forms. Some people were meeting early uh, before those in the, uh, you know, primarily working class could get there. And they would come together for Lord's Supper, which was much more of a meal than what we share today, and they would eat it all. And then the less fortunate within the community would come hoping to have something to eat at the end of the day, and it would be gone. Uh, so this was a problem, and it extended to people drinking the communion wine. They would drink all of the communion wine for the whole group before the whole group even got there, which was also a problem. So some were going hungry while others used the event as their own full meal and ate everything. Uh, so Paul's message to them is, you know, none of these things are really what communion is about, <laughs> okay? Like, I know it's called the Lord's Supper, but let's, let's use our brains here a little bit. Uh, another issue that came up, another area, was specifically what was happening in the worship times themselves. Now, before we get into this one, I want you to understand when we talk about church and worship, we are not talking about what we do today, okay? It, it, it's, and it's hard for us to hear words like church and not think about this or you know, how we do it and what it looks like and what we do. Within these churches, they met in people's homes. Um, it was much less formal. There wasn't a Bible to read. Um, there were stories about Jesus to share and about the gospel and about what was going on. Uh, even in terms of like psalms and prayers, they could access some of that if they had access to an Old Testament uh, which wasn't known as the Old Testament at the time, but if they had access to that, uh, they could go in and read some of those things. But I want you to understand when we talk about worship and we talk about church, it's a very different animal, okay? So we need to appreciate for a second that it's not all about this that we have today. So one of the things that they uh, had to discuss was whether or not women should wear head coverings in worship. Um, and here's what was happening. Uh, as they were discovering that they were free in Christ, uh, one of the traditions was for women to wear head coverings. But in their freedom in Christ, they were removing their head coverings while they were in, uh, when they were together doing these things as a way to uh, show how much freedom they had. But the problem was that them doing that was taking away from the important things that were actually happening. So Paul tells them, when praying or prophesying, a woman should cover her head, a man doesn't have to, okay? Now, we can look at some of these things, which we're going to get to worse ones in a second. Uh, we can look at some of these things and view them as rules against women, but the, the reason why I want to bring this up to you is that Paul, when he's writing these letters to them, he's responding to specific problems that have been brought to his attention, so we can't look at something like this and say, see, women are supposed to wear head coverings in church because they're lesser than men. That's not the point. 
The point was what the lack of head coverings was doing within that specific group of people at that time and how it was becoming a distraction to worship itself. You follow me on that? Okay. Because if we can't get that, then the next one's going to be just a nightmare. Uh, (laughs) uh, The big category, which we're going to talk about today, was spiritual gifts. Um, There there was a lot to say about spiritual gifts. Uh, They argued about which gifts were from God and which were not. Um, There was jealousy over the gifts that people did or did not have, and everyone wanted to have the greater gifts, which at that time, the greatest gift, what they considered to be the greatest gift was the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, People were misusing spiritual gifts to the benefit of themselves instead of the community. The gift of tongues was of special concern. And lastly, people were fighting and speaking over one another so that they could get their word from God out above everyone else's. So let's say, for example, since we're not covering this specific part today, that uh, Michelle has a prophecy that she wants to share, and Dan has a prophecy that he wants to share. So Michelle stands up and starts uh, giving her prophecy, and Dan, because you know how Dan is, Dan gets up and starts speaking over Michelle. Well, Mike decides it's time to speak in tongues, so he gets up at the same time, and what ends up happening? Chaos. All right? Chaos. Confusion. Things, these gifts from God are not being used as gifts. Instead, they're being used to draw attention to the individual and whatever the individual was doing or saying. Within this context, there, is, there are some verses that speak specifically to women. And if you've had a pulse in a church of Christ you know, over the past 15, 20 years, you know what verses I'm talking about. A woman cannot speak. If she uh, has a question, she should ask her husband. You know, those, those little uh, nutmegs, chestnuts, that we get to have. Um, so we're not going to get into that today for the primary reason that you've already been through that. And so I don't need to like take you through something that you've already been through before. But I want to just point out one small thing. Um, can you go back one, Jed? What are women doing? They're praying and prophesying. And does Paul tell them not to pray and prophesy within the body? No. So when we get to these later verses about women being silent and not speaking, the first question we should have is, what is Paul talking about with these verses when he's also telling women to pray and prophesy in the community? Right? Like, that would be the most logical question for us. Instead of taking one thing out and making it the rule. Now, the temptation in taking that one thing out is that the words are so plain. I get it. I get that the words are plain. But is it possible that Paul was talking about two kind of separate things when he talks about head coverings in worship and women praying and prophesying and these other verses about being quiet? And what do we know about the community as a whole when they worship? It was devolving into chaos. 
So Paul is having to give some rules, give some ideas, give some thoughts to bring everything back to a place where they are using their gifts for God. So, just wanted to point that out. Um, we have a lot to say when it comes to worship. And this is just sort of a, a bird's eye view of some of the things that Corinth was dealing with, which we're not going to dig into all of them because we don't have the time. But the trend, as you know, of arguing over what we do in worship has not really abated over the years. Let me read to you my favorite example. This happened in Springfield, Missouri in 1886. Uh, so it was a little while ago. Uh, the church there had an organ, or, or I'm sorry, the church there, there were members that wanted to have an organ in church, and there were members that did not want to have an organ in church. The church voted 121 to 68 to bring an organ into the service. Within the 68 that disagreed were the trustees of the congregation, so the church approved a resolution which allowed for them to be removed if they did not do what everyone else wanted them to do. Okay, so it's not starting off well, right? There's disagreement. They can't come to a conclusion. The larger portion says, if you don't do what we want, then we'll vote you out, and they put a special law in in order to do that. A reporter from the St. Louis Globe went to church on January 31st of 1886 to cover the church putting an organ in the assembly. And here's what the reporter reported. After the pastor had read the opening hymn, the organist began playing and many joined in the singing. But at the same time, the opponents of the organ started up another tune, and a pandemonium ensued. <laughs> After the sacrament, an anti-organ brother arose to smooth matters over with a talk, but was interrupted with a lively hymn volunteered by the organ crowd. At the close of the service, Mr. Bills, having consulted a lawyer, was advised to play the organ at all hazards, and he did so, and the meeting broke up into confusion. And by the spring of 1887, there were two congregations in Springfield rather than one. Okay, so they didn't invent these rules, right? They were carrying on stuff that we see happen with the Israelites, and we are still carrying these things on today within ourselves. So what was, let's go back to Corinth. What was at the heart of these problems that they were having with worship? And just for a surface analysis, there is one thing that was getting in the way every time. And that was people's sense of self-importance. Um, in each of these cases, no matter what you're looking at, you have to ask yourself, you know, when they were doing these things, who was the main character? And it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the body. It was them and what they could get out there. And the individual, whoever had whatever gifts, was acting in their own best interest when they used them which reminds us of a fundamental point that you know, but that I'm going to remind you of this morning. And this is the heart of where all of this comes to. In fact, I think we could probably argue that this is the heart of almost every issue within Corinth. And that is this. Your relationship with God 
is not only about you. You may think it is. You may think it's about your salvation. You may think it's about how God is changing your life. And yes, that is part of the story. But I want you to know that your relationship with God was never intended to be about you. It was intended to be about two things. The first thing, it's supposed to be about Jesus. And if you're talking about yourself, it is not about how good you are or how grateful you are for the gifts that God has given you. It's not about the effect that you're having in the church. It's not about how you are wise while others are weak. It's not about the freedom that God has given you which you're wielding as an instrument against other people. It is about Jesus. And if Jesus is not the fundamental core of what you're saying, then you're wrong. Because it's about him. And look, I can talk about myself and encourage other about what God has done in me, but my story isn't about how I clawed my way up, you see. It's about how Jesus loved me and changed me from the points where I was at my weakest to now every day, every moment that I'm awake. That's the story. That's the miracle. The miracle is Jesus. The miracle is not me. Secondly, the second purpose of of the, your story, the story of, of, of what God has done in you, is that you are a part of the unique community that God is building in the world, a community that stands apart from the rest of the world, a community that has different values, that, that knows that different things are important, and anything that God does in you is to bring glory to Jesus and to build up the body of Christ. Period. It's to bring glory to Jesus and to build up the body of Christ. Okay. Let's leap into spiritual gifts. Excuse me. Because <clears throat> it's the best example for us to look like. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> now, what was their problem with spiritual gifts? What was the core thing that kind of derailed all of this? Well, we know, number one, that, that they were making things about themselves. They were making themselves the important part of the story. So here's the real issue. Some of the gifts were obvious. Like It was clear that you had this gift. If you were speaking in tongues is the primary example. If you were speaking in tongues, what does that look like? Well, you stand up and you speak in a different language. Okay, and so that gift was particularly obvious, right? I mean, how does, how does the gift of wisdom, for example, show up next to that? Which one is flashier? You know, which one, which one has the neon sign and which one doesn't? And so that was the most flashy attention-getting gift. 
And then, can't you see, because it's so obvious, if people are waiting for God to gift them, and you have the gift of tongues, can't you see how that particular gift would be turned into, like, a boon for that person? You know, you have this obvious gift that you can do and talk with God, and no one else can understand. Can't you see how, how that could draw someone in to feeling really, really good about themselves? because they have that gift. And in these cases, they are the only one who understands what's happening if there's not an interpreter. So how easily can it become that I, I'm speaking in tongues, and when it's over, there's not an interpreter to say, and I say afterwards, man, I wish you knew what God just told me. Right? Right? See how special I am. And those who had this gift in particular viewed themselves as being more important than those who had other gifts. Uh, Thus, like many other things within this church, spiritual gifts were being viewed as a benchmark to how important and spiritual someone actually was. And the flashier the gift, the more important you were. And the greater your role in the community should be. Paul has a slightly different message for them in chapter 12. So let's start out here with verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Okay, so this gives us a little bit of insight. And that is, they didn't understand spiritual gifts at all. If you can take something that God has given you and completely misuse it, they were doing that. They were doing that. Now, in part, it's, it's, it's part of where they came from. As, as you may remember from you know, the, one of the first lessons, there were not very many Jews within this particular church, which means that most of the members of the church were formerly pagan. They went and they, uh, they made sacrifices to idols, and within you know, all of these systems, they understood that the greater blessing meant that you know, 
God favored you over everyone else. So when they got these bigger gifts, they didn't understand how to use them within a community. Um, and so they used them poorly. So look, let's look at where he starts, though, because it's pretty interesting at the beginning there of chapter 12. And the first thing he wants them to know is that the primary thing that the Spirit does with us is it empowers our confession. It helps us to know the truth about who Jesus is. And he makes a very simple argument about this. Things that are of God are from God. Things that are not of God are not from God. By the Spirit, you confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you are able to curse Jesus, that is not from the Spirit. That is from a different thing altogether. So here's the important part about all of this and what the Spirit does in us. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, that proves what about you? You have the Spirit of God. Which, isn't that really the important thing about this? Is that you have the Spirit of God? There may be other spiritual experiences, and within this, this church, we can imagine all the things that people were saying God was doing to them or things that had happened to them. But the important thing is that you are recognizing through the Spirit that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, there are different kinds of gifts, but they all come from the same place. All right? They all come from the same place. Now, why is this a necessary statement? Well, again, we need to remember that all this was new to them, and it was confusing. And so we talked about the gift of tongues and how it was the most obvious gift. And, and, and so people wanted that. And then uh, there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding that, you know, if Michelle has the gift of prophecy and Dan has the gift of tongues, okay, well, they're different. So, which one of you is really following God? Because it's, it's not the same. So they were having a hard time understanding that though the gifts were different, they were coming from the same place. All right? I, I would put this under the category of things Paul thought he would never have to explain. That's, what, that's where I would put this particular one. So he says, God is at work in all of you who confess that Jesus is Lord. And even though the work he is doing in you as individuals may look different, they are all coming from the same God and the same Spirit. So let's just get that part out of the way. Because one person has one thing and another person has another, it doesn't mean there are different spiritual forces at play. These things are all from God. And furthermore, the Spirit itself chooses what gifts to give. And he doesn't, it's worth noting, he doesn't explain here how the Spirit chooses. Because who chooses? The Spirit and who tells the Spirit how to choose. God does, because He's the Spirit of God. So what, does, what do our thoughts then 
about who deserves what, do they matter to the equation? No, the Spirit has chosen to give each person a gift, and that is why they have that gift. So the conclusion is there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but the same God who activates all of them and everyone. So why does God gift people differently? Why aren't we all the same? Wouldn't it be better if we all had the same gifts and then we could just move forward as one big prophesying group or one big group that speaks in tongues? Well, we need to, we need to change our thinking about this, he says to them. The possession of a gift is not a matter of individual merit, i.e., you earned this. Every gift of the Spirit is a gift from God. It's not about who. It's not about you. These are gifts from God. And the bottom line that we, we're going to see him get to, but which he's already getting to, is that there is no ground for boasting about being spiritual no matter what gift you possess. Because they've all come from the same place. And all the manifestations of spirit are to serve God's purpose for the benefit of the community. Why is it this way? I mean, even for us, it's a little bit of an abstract idea that God gifts us to bless the community. I mean, even we now are still wrestle a little bit with, well, God bless me. And that's for me to bless whom I choose to bless, right? But Paul, Paul can't understand that way of thinking. What you have, you have because God wants you to use it in the body of Christ. Why? Because there is one body of Christ. And within a body, not everything is the same. So stop focusing on what you don't have and use what you do have to the benefit of what God is doing in this place. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, the comparison between the body and human societies here was a common rhetorical device in the ancient world. Paul was not the one who invented this illustration. It was one that was used uh, in, in a lot of different areas. And why that's useful is the church would have recognized that and been familiar with what Paul is saying. In fact, they might have already accepted it in other areas, which that's important if they're going to apply it to this place that they are not. It was ordinarily used to urge members of the subordinate classes, uh, the more poor, to stay in their places in the social order and not to upset the natural equilibrium of the body by rebelling against their employers. Look, man, I know your life stinks. I know your life stinks. 
And I know I'm, I know I'm the brain, but I need you to be the feet. I know it's dirty down there. I know it's dirty. I know it's gross. But look, that's, some people are just feet, man, you know? So, so just accept it, all right? Because this is how it is, and this is the world that we live in. So Paul uses this analogy for a completely different reason. He's not using it to keep subordinates or those who are more poor in their places, but to urge the more privileged members of the community to respect and value those who are, they might have considered to be lesser within the church. So Paul starts out not by saying, uh, this is how the church is, the body. Instead, he says something which is easy for us to miss. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with, with Christ. So it is with Christ. Now, why do you think it's important that Paul say Christ right there? Because let's say you are on the top of the social body outside. And let's say that you like the body analogy because you're on the top. And let's say you see the church as just another social community to conquer, to become the head of. When Paul says, he doesn't say it's this way in the church, it's this way in this community. He says, this is how it is with Christ. Can you imagine just that one word, how much that would deflate those who think they're so important? Oh, this is about Jesus? This isn't just about this group? So he starts out by saying this is about Christ, and, and therefore it has different rules. You can't apply the same things you would everywhere else because this group does not function like other groups function. When you are talking about the church, you are talking about Jesus. And Jesus is different. So they all in this group started somewhere away from Christ and they were all brought into Christ in the same way. They were all baptized into the Spirit. It is the same Spirit that they have all been brought into. And the ways in which they are, same, are the same, the fact that they have all come through Jesus, is more important than the ways that they are different. Outside of the church, the differences make one person more important and another person less important. That's not the way it is in Christ. You don't get to look at things the same way because it is about being his body. So yes, we have different gifts, Paul says, but let me tell you why. Let's look at verses 15 through 26. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Uh, here's what's pretty funny about this. Imagine if your ear went on strike. Right? Um, is it still there? Yeah? Is it still going to hear even if it doesn't want to? Of course. Uh, that's part of what he's saying here. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're indispensable. And, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The message, you are thinking about this the wrong way. Because how does the body actually work? It needs all of the parts. Because if you take a part away, the body becomes less than it was with it. It doesn't matter what you think about that particular job or person or part. You need them. And it does you no good to argue about it. And he comes at this from two different angles. Look, without the difference, the body would not only be helpless, it would be gross. What would a body of eyes look like? What does it walk on? How does that work? It can't function. So on a really fundamental level, guys, we have to be different. Like, it's just, it's required of us. And secondly, the different parts, though they are different, are interdependent. The eyes would not go anywhere without the feet. They would just stare at where they want to go. The mouth could do nothing without the hands. The different members of the church need one another. So therefore, if one part suffers, they all suffer. They all suffer. Have you ever had a painful hangnail? Yeah? It's a small thing, isn't it? It's like this little piece of skin. And yet, how does your body feel about that little piece of skin? It hates it and just wants it to go away. How about like when you bite the inside of your cheek? How does your body feel about that experience? It's not like the hand is saying, I told you, right? It doesn't work that way. We all need each other, and in fact, what happens to one happens to all of us. Why is Paul going at this again? What, what does he need them to hear? Well, we don't have to guess. Those who think of themselves as strong and knowledgeable, those who are exalting themselves over those that they regard as the weak, you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Just like in offering meat sacrifice to idols. Okay, so you know something they don't know. And you're using that as some sort of, look how great God has made me and don't you want to come be wise like me? 
instead of building up the one who needs help. That's not wisdom, friends. And it's the same thing here. This whole idea of putting yourself over someone else in the body is stupid. Because look, you may be an eye, but you're not going anywhere without the rest of it. And all you'll do is see. You won't smell. You won't hear. You won't taste. You won't touch. You won't feel. You won't know God. You won't know God. So everyone has these gifts. They're meant to be used together. And yes, as he says in the last section, which we're going to skip over, um, there are big gifts, there are small gifts. He acknowledges that. But that doesn't mean that small gifts are not important. And isn't it true, we who've been a part of this for a while, we know that being an eye actually stinks. And that at other times, it's much greater to be the hand or the foot, isn't it? To go and to touch. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, when we talk about sin, problems, issues within a community, we, we most often think of the big examples, of which Corinthians had many. You know, they're taking each other to court. Uh, they're getting drunk over the, over the Lord's Supper. People are uh, bragging about their freedom in Christ, allowing them to do whatever they want sexually. Uh, we could keep going. These are all the big things, which is what makes Corinthians such an interesting study. And we could keep going all these things, but let's face it, when we look at these examples, we view them as sin with a capital S. They are the interesting, eye-catching things. But I am convicted, however, that when I see these big things and I see that they're sins with a capital S, I realize they didn't start that way. They started with something that is much smaller, in our opinion, but that lays the groundwork for all of these things we see in Corinth. Things like pride, greed, self-importance. These are things we often engage in and just pass over as if they don't matter. Or as if this is just who we are. I mean, after all, Bryce, doesn't everyone want to be important? I mean, isn't that okay? These are more common, right? It's just this is who we are. True. But if you read through the Bible, it's shocking how often pride is at the middle of what's going wrong. That one thing is at the middle of what's going on. So in Corinth, what we're seeing is what happens when these basic sins go unchecked. When people don't, don't make all of who they are submit to Jesus. When they hold on to wanting to be important in a place where Jesus is important. What, we see what happens when people look out for themselves first. We see what happens when a community gets fixated on their position 
What happens when they make the stories about themselves, when they consider themselves more important than others? And the hard message we get from this encouraging passage is that when those things are present, you are not the body of Christ. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. When these things are present and driving us to do what we do, then we are not the body of Christ. We are something else. Because what God is doing in the world is bigger than you and me. And honestly, it's bigger than how you feel about yourself. It's bigger than what you think you should have or what you deserve. We are a point of something bigger because we are about two things. We who know Jesus point the way to him. And two, we are a part of creating something that is unique in this world. And isn't that enough? Isn't that more than enough? Isn't that the most wonderful gift we could receive? Is that this life, guys, is not about me. Thank God it's not about me. Thank God it's not about you. Thank God for Jesus who rescues us from ourselves. Amen?